Hello and welcome to Shoulder Charge, a rugby league podcast. I'm Casey Smith and here's what's on the show this week. The World Cup is on. I'll be giving you my thoughts on that a little bit later on. There's also the Challenge Cup tie to review and the 1895 Cup tie. But first, back in about April, you'll remember news that Salford's future was very much uncertain and that's because sales sharks are looking to buy the AJ Bell Stadium. Now the parent company of the AJ Bell Stadium is the council and Peel Holdings. The stadium has been losing a lot of money over the years so they're looking to get rid of it and unfortunately Salford are not in a position to buy the stadium. They just don't have the money and a sure option with sale sharks wouldn't be a viable option either and that's because they couldn't afford to pay the rents that would be enforced should sale sharks own the stadium and we had Pete Brady on from the Salford Supporters Trust discussing it and you know wondering what the avenues are for Salford and I've got him back on again today we've recently had the fans forum and the petition has been heard 8,000 signatures that got. So we're a little bit clearer on the direction of travel for Salford now, which is looking like Molain. There are doubts over the viability of that, but it's mo- it's a more realistic option than moving out of the city and staying at the AJ Bell, and a new stadium is not on the cards either. So... Here's Pete Brady, Chairman of Salford Supporters Trust, explaining where we are at the moment with the future of Salford Red Devils. Okay, so um, I think last time we spoke, uh, there was still quite a lot of uh, indecision about you know where we were in terms of you know the stadium and the prospects of having to move away. Uh, I think things are an awful lot clearer now. I had a fans forum down at the, the stadium with Cork King and the council and they've really shared an awful lot more information with us with regards to the stadium and its finances and where the council stand and where the club stand. So it's, it's a lot clearer now for the fans and there's probably three uh, options that we've got. One is to remain at the stadium, um, though the, the likelihood is that stadium will be bought by Sail Sharks and will become a tenant of theirs and that obviously has implications with the, with the, um, the, the tenancy agreement that we have or the contractual tenancy agreement which is for £350,000 a year plus additional add-ons which takes it to about £450,000 a year and they're likely to insist on are not being paid. Um, the option two is to remain within the city, um, but a different venue. And realistically, the only other venue that we could possibly play at would be the Moorlane Stadium, which is currently occupied by Salford City Football Club. Uh, and the third option is to move out of the city, which is no one's desire. Um, it's a, very much a last resort, and but it still remains on the table as being an option. Um, and we're working with Manchester uh, councils in regards the potential sites that we could possibly uh, co-inhabit with the, the current tenants. So that's something that uh, is an ongoing conversation. Yeah, and in terms of the petition, what was the outcome with that? 
roughly around about 8,000 signatures, uh, which was an incredible uh, achievement. And those signatures were fans, obviously, of the club, but also fans of rugby league. And we had them from all over the world, from Australia, from Argentina, from the States, you know, expats who have uh, obviously followed rugby league in the UK uh, and were very keen to support the, the club or certainly the supporters in terms of trying to remain with AJ Bell, which you know, still remains a community stadium uh, as we speak at this stage. Yeah. Um, the direction of travel to me seems to be pointing towards more lane. Is that what you think as well? Likely to be the the solution that probably um, ticks more boxes than the other solutions. Yeah. I mean, if, to remain at the stadium that we currently have, uh, then it's likely that we'll have to pay the additional funds to to remain there, which is clearly going to be uh, money that's going to come out of the player budget, um, and inevitably. Uh, that means that we would have less money to play for, pay for players and have salaries, uh, and we wouldn't be able to retain the sort of squad that we've got now, in, both in terms of numbers but also in terms of quality. Um, I, I don't think it takes a, a brain surgeon to understand that that's likely to mean we will get relegated um, if we have to pay that sort of salary, uh, so that's the rent, and uh, inevitably. Um, uh, relegation comes less of an income, um, and you know, inevitably, you know, we end up being either uh, busted within a couple of years, or certainly playing part-time, um, part-time players in, in the championship, or even below that. So, it's not something that um, we want to consider. I think more lane will give us the opportunity with the right conditions and the right. Um, Agreements in place with the council and, and Gary Neville and his team down there that you know if we could um, secure that stadium for a medium to long term um, basis, then we would have the opportunity, hopefully, of being masters of our own, of our own destiny. So things like the naming rights to the stadium, um, perimeter advertising, would all be income that we could uh, retain ourselves. At the moment, it's uh, the age of bell. That's not possible to do that. That becomes revenue for the um, the stadium company and um, we don't have any benefits regarding food and beverage receipts as well which we hopefully would do at More Lane so as much as More Lane's got its challenges um, regarding parking and, and accessibility and the fact that it's not really training or office space if we can secure those elements of the deal then in essence what we'll do is we'll just play 14 times a year at, the, at More Lane uh, and we'll just to find some accommodation around the other issues that we've, uh, we're facing. Too. Yeah. Uh, some of that came up in the fans forum was that the club uh, budgeted for average attendances of 8,000, but I don't think the, you know Salford have got near those numbers. Was, the, was that wrong to do that? I, I think there were a lot of assumptions made when we moved to that stadium around potential crowd numbers and also the sale of the land around the stadium which was all promised that you know we would do that or the council would do that that um, the stadium would be paid off and that we would be there as the second tenants um, paying probably the operational costs of the stadium rather than a significant amount of rent so um, the assumptions were all wrong in the first place I think we covered that in, in the, the first few that um, 
it was never going to be the case of us getting crowds of 8,000 plus. If we, if we do, did do that, there'd obviously be no problem staying the stadium because the revenue would be sufficient enough to pay for the contractual elements of the, the deal that we had. Uh, I think Paul showed on all the screen at the fans forum that um, I think our average attendance is about 3,400 or down thereabouts. And only on 16 occasions of the 143 games that we played in the stadium have we had crowds over 5,000. Um, so it's been a really um, difficult um, contractual arrangement that we've had um, to be able to pay that. So we've never paid the, the contractual arrangements because we've never had those crowds coming through and, and the, the land haven't been sold um, as it was promised it would be. Um, so there's, there's a number of things at the outset that were completely false and therefore that's where we find ourselves in the situation with the stadium company owing, I think it's upwards of 33.5 million um, to the council and also to Peel. And that's why we've got a situation where the council and Peel have to sell really, otherwise the, the company will go bust. Uh, for you to stay where you are, um, what would have to happen? Sharks um, is inevitable, and that's going to happen sooner or later. Right. So that will be probably in the next few weeks. I would have thought. Um, Sale quite rightly would ask for the the contractual payments to be made that were agreed at the start of that contract, and that's what I said earlier is a four hundred and fifty thousand pound a year, which covers not only um, the ability to play at the stadium, but also the office space that we have within the stadium as well so uh, if we were to do that then like I said it would come out of the player budget um, we, we couldn't afford to do that once the contractual arrangements finish in 2023 um, then there will be a new contract drawn up with um, South Sharks and who knows that could be 650000 or even more than that and, and clearly that's not something that's sustainable for a club of our size uh, and, and the income that we generate. So that's likely to be the end of the club if we were to um, you know, uh, be determined to stay there. We just we couldn't afford to do that. So I think from that point of view, it's, it's unrealistic to expect us to do that. Hence the reason why we need to work with the likes of Gary Neville and his team at Salford City and the council to see if there is an ability to be able to uh, move base to Moor Lane um, and if that's not possible then obviously we go out the city and, and that's not would please both our fan base um, and it's not going to be a sustainable plan in my view um, and these are obviously my personal views as regards to what's likely to happen I mean there's probably you know, a, a number of different types of options that people are willing to go over the moment. But uh, for me, the only realistic solution is to move to Moorlane. Yeah. And looking at Moorlane, for the benefit of the listeners, um, it's capacity over just 5,000, I think, just over that. So I think that would suit the capacity requirements for Supley. But then we've got the other requirements, which are 40 seats uh, in a director's box, 40 for the boardroom... A minimum of 200 for sponsors, 200 for corporate 
in a corporate lounge, which is all according to the Super League's operational rules. Do we know if Morlane has got those requirements? Uh, I honestly don't know. Um, I, to me, that's something that we, uh, certainly as a sports trust, we haven't even contemplated. That would be something for the club and the uh, Super League and the Football League to um, look at as far as suitability. I think you're right from a capacity point of view. I think it just about ticks the boxes. Yeah. From a pitch size point of view, I think it ticks the boxes. But as for the other requirements, then uh, I honestly don't know what. what level of, um, I mean, the seating is obviously there in terms of numbers, there are sufficient numbers, but how that would impact on, um, you know, season ticket holders and people starting the yeah. stand and, and um, I mean, there, there, there will have to be some sort of um, uh, folk from the Rugby Football League and Super League to come down and, and make those assessments best at the stadium, um, should we get down and pursue that? I mean, at the moment, you know, um, Soccer City have not offered up Morlane as a as an opportunity for us. So there are lots of discussions that are going to go on in, in the next few weeks as to how that could possibly happen. So you know, the Rugby Football League might come back and say, Do you know what, it's, it's not suitable for this, that, and the other reasons, and in which case it's, it's taken off the table. So we, we're not at that stage where we've got down to the final detail. Yeah. I'm sure that will happen over the next few weeks, though. And in the fans forum as well, it, there was mention of that you might need new office and training facilities. Uh, it, I think some clubs use university facilities, or you know, maybe where Salford train, or you know, what what are the options? Well, again, that's something to be explored. Um, we've obviously raised these as, as issues with council. Um, I think for an elite sports club, you know, you need the type of facilities that um, reflect the status of the club. Yeah. So we're not looking to, you know, get out to the local uh, gym and, and, and train alongside, um, you know, members of the public. These are have, these have to be up to certain standards. So again, these are all uh, things that we need to explore with the council with regards to the office facilities. Um, I'm, I'm sure there are buildings within the council's um, ownership that uh, can be adapted to give us the upper space that we require. But the club has the ambition to also um, develop its um, educational um, elements of its uh, operations. So to have classrooms available so that we can um, bring um, young students in to develop their skills in whichever way in the foundation that are currently based at a local college um, where that with the opportunity to bring those back into under one roof remains to be seen. So again, lots of conversations to be had, not many answers at this stage, but I'm sure that uh, certainly from an office point of view, I think that's you know, certainly manageable. Um, we'll, we'll find space somewhere. With regards to the training facilities, that's a different question and, and we need to find a a suitable place that uh, is affordable uh, and also offers the sort of conditions and uh, equipment that we require. Yeah, and I think one of the downsides of your current stadium is that, you know, if you don't drive, it's quite difficult to get to. So, you know, if you did move to Morlane, would that be, you know, it might work out better for you? Yeah, I mean, it's still within the city, albeit it's on the periphery. Um, 
but the parking has always been uh, an issue ever since Salford City started to um, move into the sort of higher echelons of the, of the non-league areas and obviously now into, into the Football League. Um, it's been, it was never built as a stadium to cater for that type of traffic and, and footfall. So, as much as it's somewhere in the stadium, sorry, in the city, it's a stadium that's not really suited to uh, house the number of people that we would expect to come down. So, as it happens you now, we are talking to local transport providers. Um, well, obviously, if I, again, these are all ifs and buts in terms of whether we go to the more line, but if it were to be more line, um, we would have further discussions with transport providers locally um, and also look at the way that Salford City have managed a park and ride scheme um, to get funds from a, a designated parking area to the stadium via some sort of shuttle bus. So there are challenges. Um, it's no by, by no means ideal uh, in terms of its situation. But as you, as you pointed out, from a capacity point of view, you know, having three and a half, four thousand, maybe up to five thousand fans in that stadium will be quite intimidating for the opposing teams to come down to. Um, and it does have, it, have its benefits. I mean, the fans across the pitch. Um, it means that you know we, we will have a, a stadium which is more than half full most of the time, and full some of the time, uh, and that will make for a great atmosphere on a, on a, on a match day. Yeah, and in terms of um, lengths of agreements for stadiums, looking at Rochdale Hornets, obviously we're on about Salford, but they've got an agreement to stay at the Crown Isle for like 20-odd years or something like that. So so they've got their long-term future. But I don't know if that's the same with every club. Like, you know, some clubs seem to have, you know, they're at a stadium for a short period, but then it's all up in the air again. And I know this is... You know, you you're at the early stages of looking for a new home. Like, how is it to like, you know, when you're going into the discussions, is is like a long term option, or is it going to be something like five years or something like that? Again, yeah, it's unlikely that the the council would. Um build another stadium in the city when there's one that's already there. Yeah. So I think uh, our options are, are likely to be that we would have to, certainly in the short term, until you know, maybe, you know, be uh, a man in Shining Armour coming down as a benefactor and miners with lots of money. Um, it's unlikely we're going to build another stadium. So therefore, realistically, I think certainly for the next um, five to ten years, um, uh, more lane or which, whichever stadium we choose, would have to be the home for the software doubles. Yeah. And there was also discussion of fan ownership via what's called a community share option. Uh, can you basically explain what that means and then what it would look like? I, I, there's a lot of work to be done on that particular initiative. Um, the Sports Trust are willing and able to be... Um, participate in, in, in how that looks. I know that uh, George Harburn from the club is um, it's one of his top priorities is to uh, get to the point where we, we can offer fans a opportunity to be shareholders in the club. Um, how that's going to work, uh, we're looking at various models, Rochdale's being one of them, 
but also looking for the field into other sports to like FC United um, and how, how their um, membership scheme or share ownership scheme works. So there's, there's work being done as we speak. Um, we've made it clear from a sports trust point of view that we'd like to be part of that conversation. And we would then, obviously, um, once a, a plan or a, a process has been established, then look to engage with our membership, but also the wider fan base to encourage them to get involved. Uh, the one thing that's really important about this, and, and we're unique in terms of being a Super League club that hasn't got a benefactor, is that in order to have a, a viable future, we need the fans to be involved actively within um, the club and you know, if we can raise whatever we can raise through a, an, an ownership model, then that's likely to um, enable fans to feel part of the club and feel part of shaping that future. And that's exactly what we need from a community share option scheme. Um, how that looks from a practical point of view is still to be decided, but uh, it's certainly something we need to get after fairly very soon. Uh, and it would be great as part of the move to a new stadium if that um, ends up being what we have to do. Um, that as part of a, a community share option scheme being opened up, I think we'll, uh, we'll sit comfortable with the fans and, and those fans all want to get involved. And, uh, and I, I'm, I mean, there's talk about sort of fan representation on the, the holding board of the club, uh, which I think is really important uh, so that we have a, a say when decisions have been made about the, the club's future. So, yeah, one to work on very quickly uh, and it's something the Sports Trust are very keen to be a part of. Yeah. Uh, so, last time we spoke, you know, it was all up in the air. It is kind of now, really, but um, in terms of where we are now, how do you feel, you know, how are you feeling for Salford's future I think there's been a lot of um, openness in, in the, the last few weeks. Last um, time we spoke, there was still quite a lot of um, stuff that was not being shared by the council and, and, and by um, the potential um, purchases of the, the stadium. Um, I think what's, what's clear is that you know, the stadium, sorry, the, the future of Salford is very much um, the focus for all the parties. So Sale Sharks um, have said that they will not proceed with the purchase of the stadium until the future of Salford Devils has been uh, secured. Uh, and likewise with Salford City, um, though there have been some informal discussions, um, they're in, in no way want to make us homeless and, and it will be a coalition of the willing to to get to a point where we do secure our future and, and, and therefore you know, it's important that the council, Sofa City and South Sharks and the club you know, have a, an agreement amongst all four of them that this is the future and this is the future direction of the club. Um, for me personally, uh, I think you know, looking at all the facts and figures and the financials which are obviously you know, key to all of this, um, the future um, lies at Morlane uh, from being realistic um, and you know, we just need to get on and make sure we get the best possible deal um, to ensure that the club can 
flourish and generate the income that it requires to invest in the squad and the infrastructure of the ground to be able to make sure that you know, we do have a, a long-term future. You know, we've got um, we've had an exciting last couple of years with our successes. Um, and I've sort of whetted the appetite really for for making sure that we do have um, a long-term future. Um, obviously, that would have to be within the Super League, and the only way we can do that really is is to have um, a stadium which we can call our own and generate the sort of income that we require in order to invest in the squad and to make sure that you know we're a viable entity. Yeah, because it is a smaller stadium, would it actually be cheaper? Or is that some of that will just be discussed? Well, I think if you go back to where we are currently, um, you know, we are tenants of the AJ Bell Stadium. You know, so we don't have to think about you know, paying for stewards and um, you know, an even a night game, then obviously the floodlights will be on. We don't have to pay for that. We don't have to pay for the upkeep of the stadium. Um, that will all change if we move to our own stadium. So we'd have to have you know, a really sort of um, big dive on in terms of what those costs would look like. So you know, we would probably be looking to um, secure volunteers to uh, and train them up in terms of the stewardship of the, the ground. We'd have to obviously employ groundsmen to um, ensure that the, the pitch is kept um, at the right sort of level of quality to play professional rugby league on. Uh, we'd obviously have to uh, take on board lots of other things with regards to um, catering staff and, and that type of thing. So there's an awful lot of work to be done on, on how that model would look like and you know, whether there is a sufficient revenue coming through in terms of ticket sales and uh, advertising, you know, the naming rights thing I mentioned earlier and the promise advertising at the moment, we don't have any income from that, the AJ Bell, but hopefully that will be a possibility to have that sort of income at, um, at Moor Lane. So, yeah, there are lots of questions over, you know, the cost of the operational cost of running a stadium that we don't have currently. Um, but we're confident that if we get the model right, um, then we could generate significant amount of revenue that would help us invest in things like the maintenance and repairs of the stadium but also into the squad. Pete Brady there. Now, before we get into the cup ties from the weekend, I thought I'd run you down a few of the things that have happened in the last week in rugby league. So, we'll start with the World Cup because... It's officially on. First of all, I think we might as well say top marks to John Dutton for getting this tournament on because I don't think anybody actually thought that it was going to be on. Everybody has signed a participation agreement barring Australia. Now, we've gone over their reservations in previous podcasts, so we won't be mulling that over. But, for me, they say they're not coming right now, but when it comes down to it, I think they will. Because, you know, when push comes to shove, do they really want to send a second-rate Australian team? Do they even want to not go at all? 
you know, they won't, <laughs> they won't retain the title. And a lot of these players actually want to play. Ask, ask a player down under, okay, do you want to participate in a World Cup or do you want to have a full pre-season? Because that's what the two options are. Someone who's not in their right mind would only choose the pre full pre-season over a World Cup. It's it's so bizarre. But, I, you know, I'm so glad it's going ahead because we can't be held to ransom by these chiefs in the NRL who says, well, oh, sorry, we've got a pre-season. Well, <laughs> I don't, no one gives a stuff about your pre-season, I'm afraid. So I, f I fully expect Australia to be there actually in some form, you know, even if some players don't choose, I think a lot of players will choose to go and even if the NRL guys say, well, you can't go, well, I expect a lot of them to sort of defy that and just go anyway. If, if I was a player there... I think I definitely would want to go and I'd I'd be sort of ignoring them when they say I can't go. And I think a lot of other players will be feeling like that. But it, it's vital this tournament goes ahead. Next year, it's not possible. It just isn't. You know, just look at when, what's happening next year, the Qatar World Cup. The BBC could not broadcast this tournament with that on at the same time. It'd be... The Rugby League World Cup, nobody would be watching it. The whole point of it is to get new audiences, surely. And this is the perfect opportunity now. On the back of the Euros, in October, that's the time and that's it. So, if you don't want to come, don't come. But nobody will bother. Nobody gives... Nobody even knows about the NRL players. Well they do, but the ones who want the ones who we want to market it to don't give a stuff about the Australians. They won't even recognise. They won't know them. So we don't need them. History will tell you who won. They won't say, well they didn't come because of that. Right. Also this season, particularly in Super League but also in the championship now, we're getting a lot of positive COVID tests. Now, it's bizarre the way it works actually, because if you get a COVID um, positive test, you've got to go into isolation. Those close contacts have also got to go into isolation, even if um, they, they don't get the virus. So... One player's probably taking out about four. Even after the isolation, then they've got to do some some more time off as well after that, even after the isolation, which just seems utterly bizarre. And I, I don't, I'm not sure if that was the case for other sports or whether it's just this one, but it, it seems strange to me. So when you do, when you consider that. And when you consider the fact that these rugby league players are more sort of, you know, the ordinary person, a lot of them have other jobs. 
a lot of them are part-time. Even the ones in Super League, I'm not sure if the... You know, it's the, the Super League is not awash with money. I'm not sure if it's the same... If they have the same bubbles as something like, you know, the Premier League. Or whether they can go into some sort of isolation. You know, they've, they've got wife and kids and whatnot. So, I suppose... Um, was this always inevitable? I think it was. But I think now it, there's a case for all this to end, really, because today it's apparently Freedom Day. We're, we're recording this, 19th of July. All restrictions are supposed to be taken away. Now, most of these elite athletes are not going to get seriously ill uh, from COVID, but they've still got to do this prolonged period of isolation. Now, probably most of them are all double vaccinated. I'm only 22 and I've had one vaccination. So, you know, most of these players will have at least have had one vaccination. So, is there a case for the testing? Because, you know... The season is kind of in danger of being curtailed. You know, so, some of these clubs might not fulfil these fixtures and we're looking at Hull KR who have played just 10 games and their games are just called off left, right and centre. Some of them not not through their own doing, but they're desperate to play games, but they can't because of the rules that are in place. Whether the isolation period can reduce... It's all going to come down to the government internet, but for me, it's time to sort of have a look at that. But, you know, that's my thoughts on that. Next is Leeds have announced the signing Aiden Caesar for next season. I think that's a good good signing. You know, they've, they've been weak with the halfback situation. You know, they, they had Kyle Eastman and then he decided it he, he couldn't return to to rugby league so then he retired and you know they've had players out injured there i suppose they'd probably want him now but you know good good signing for them and there's a bit of uncertainty over who the coach is going to be you know when richard agar signed that extended contract the wording was very very carefully put saying he has signed a new contract to stay on coaching, which most likely will be in the head coach role. So that says to me, they're working really hard to get some other coach in. Now, Danny Ward is uh, unemployed at the moment. Will they be going for him? Will they be going for a, another NRL guy? Who knows? And Kevin Sinfield has left now for Rugby Union for his sins. You know, I'm a, I'm sure there's a there's a bit of money there to to spend on on some kind of coach. So if you're asking me, uh, Richard Agar's not going to be the coach, f- uh, you know, next season. But that that's just a hunch. I, I don't know anything. But that's it for what's been going on this week. Uh, now we'll get on to the cup ties, and we'll start with the 1895 cup, and what a final that was. I think it was much better um, played as a curtain raiser. 
I were there in the 2019-1895 Cup for the Sheffield Eagles v Widness. And that were after the Challenge Cup final. And it was a bit, you know, everyone had left sort of thing. It was a good good tie anyway, but I think it works a lot better being um, it before the Challenge Cup final. And also, I think, did that kick off? At, I can't remember when it kicked off, but, you know, it was going later on in the evening. I think Challenge Cup was three o'clock, so it must have been about half five or something. So, yeah, you know, it's getting late then, isn't it? But, yeah, the match, I thought York were fantastic. You know, look at how they are in the table now. It's been a terrible season for them. They've had all sorts of COVID issues. They've had all sorts of injuries. They sat just above the relegation zone. They've had four wins out of 13, which is not where anyone would have expected York to be. You know, they should be right up there in the playoffs, but several factors have meant that they're not. You know, there's also the issue of have they signed players who were sort of past the best? You know, they've signed a lot of Super League experience, but have have the best... Well, the best days have gone because they're in the championship, but are they falling further away even from that? That's a debate in itself. So it's been terrible for York, but they produced an almighty performance. I thought they battled tremendously. You know, the way they were... The way they were just darting forward at Featherstone in that ruck area, they got through so many times. They were making brilliant meters, and it was it was you score, I score, you score, I score, and it, it carried on for that right up until the dying stages of the game, when Featherstone sort of pushed ahead a bit. But you know, that was only because York were tiring. They were, they were doing so much work in that game. But, you know, congratulations to Featherstone because they had the experience and, you know, they managed the game well. And they're still unbeaten. You, they were always the favourites, actually. They were, they were favourites to win that more comfortably than they did. And it could have been much, much closer. It could have been a totally different result. Because in that first half, York were 22 points to 10 down at half-time. And at half-time, you were thinking, how the hell are York losing this? How is how are you Featherstone 12 points ahead? Because they were both level on par with each other. But somehow, York found... Uh, sorry, Featherstone found you know, a bit of extra guile, shall we say, to propel themselves further on. And in those first few minutes, you were fearing for York because there was error after error. And But they defended that. So to come through a nervy start to then pushing yourself to levelling up with Everston, then for them to then break out another lead and yet in the second half you still went at it and I think were they leading at one point they definitely 
put quite a few points on the board early on in the second half. But ev- eventually it fell away from them. But that was a cracking game. Now, on to the Challenge Cup game. St. Helens won 26 points to 12. Let's just talk about the coverage a bit because there was a, there was quite a lot of coverage for the Challenge Cup, you know, national coverage that you don't usually get. And I think, okay, they're probably not interested in game-to-game Super Leagues, but they will be interested in the big games, so they'll be interested in the Challenge Cup Final, as we've seen, they'll be interested in the Super League Grand Final. But also, I think this is interesting because we've seen what sells, you know. If they're interested in this, then it's going to be, what is the coverage going to be for the World Cup? There's going to be quite a lot, I think. So, you know, even more of a case to get this World Cup on, to get new audiences in. I think Castleford v St. Helens Challenge Cup final was sort of a taster of what we might have. You know, think about what it's going to be in the World Cup. But that's just that. Um, I thought Castleford battled, you know, another battle, battling performance. It were twelve six at half time. They were winning. They they had Saint Helens, you know, by the ball, shall we say? And when Neville's put that try in, you thought, bloody hell, are Castleford gonna do it? But there was a change at half time. Theo Farge was replaced. Jack Wells became into the halves, and it transformed Saint Helens. And you know, deeper into that second half, Castleford gave away too many. Errors. St. Helens just kept putting them two points on and psychologically just keep raking on them two points. It's properly disheartening when you're seeing that scoreboard go up and up, you're seeing the time run down, and you're not able to get hold of the possession and you can't do anything. And that's what killed them off, you know. It, we talk a lot about St. Helens and how they're so boring. They don't have the X factor. Where is Regan Grace this year? Where's his diving tries? You know, we saw one from Tommy Makinson, but we've not seen that this year, really. Have Saints really been their best? They've not, because where are they in the table? The second. They've won 10 games, which is a lot, but. Something tells you that they just not what they once was, especially under um, Justin Holbrook. But what has been added from Christian Wolf is a a steeliness, a team that just doesn't. They don't give anything away, and okay, some games they might prioritize that too much, you know. They might give teams chances because they've not been enterprising. But certainly in those big games, I think that is the way to go about. You know, perhaps they could be more attacking in the league and then do the proper game plan in these finals, which we saw. Because, you know, the tactics killed off Castleford, really. 
and they weren't given a chance in that second half. I think, you know, we were talking about who's who's looking like the grand final now on a previous podcast. And, you know, I, I was saying, well, we can't see past Catalan Dragons. Well, I think this St. Helens performance firmly puts them back in the race. You know, the big game players... They hadn't won this uh, the Challenge Cup final since 2008. I watched the 2019 one where Warrington, you know, threw up a surprise and St. Helens went missing on the day. You know, the big players, they didn't, they didn't produce. But they finally got that Challenge Cup. And when, when were the last time a team won the Challenge Cup? And Super League. It was 2015. And it were Leeds Rhinos who won. They won the Super League Grand Final against Wigan. I think it were 22 points to 20. And in the Challenge Cup Final, God. They beat Hawkingston Rovers 50-0. Well, you know, that weren't a good game, was it? <laughs> For the neutral. So, yeah, it's something that's not really been... It's not often that that happens. So will it happen again this year? I'm still backing Catalan Dragons at the moment. I can't wait for the playoffs, by the way. We're not far away from them, actually. You know, they kick off about 18th of September, I think it is. Or is it? Is it just a week? I think it's the week after that. So it's, it's the last week in um, September. So... You know, we're nearly in August now, really, so we're not that far away. Looking ahead to next week, well, this week and the weekend, the be- the pick of the ties are in the Championship in League One for me. On Sunday, there's there's a load of Championship fixtures that, you know, you've got York, who are just above the relegation zone against Swinton, who are desperate to win. Oldham, who are, no, are desperate again under Ryan McDermott. They're facing Whitehaven. They've got to be winning that one. London are facing Widness. I think two teams are currently in the playoffs, or Widness are just outside. Bradford v Featherstone. Another top-of-the-table clash, I suppose. Bartley v Newcastle. I think Newcastle are just on the verge of the playoffs. Bartley... I think they, strangely, they've fallen right down. They're six at the moment. But um, they've got eight wins, and Newcastle are in seventh, have got five wins. So there's there's a big gap there, really. But I think Batley have had tough fixtures recently. I expect them to push back up to where they are, really. Also, Sheffield are facing Halifax, so... You know, if Sheffield want to push themselves forward, they probably want to win that one. But Halifax, they've been on another dimension, really, this year, too. League One, two ties looking good is North Wales v Doncaster. Doncaster are third right now. Uh, North Wales occupy the last spot in the playoffs. And also, Rochdale are facing Workington. Workington have been, you know, they've only lost once this year. Rochdale have had all sorts of injury issues. They've had a week off. Whether 
you know, they've got more men back. We'll we'll find out on the day. But, you know, that'll be a good tie. But that's it for this week. Do join me next week as we'll do it all again. See you then.